Welcome to the Ether Review, the podcast about the applications of blockchain technology. From big business to governments to the software that powers our cars, this new iteration of the internet affects every part of our lives. By speaking to the people who work in this emerging field, we aim to decrypt this new technology and distribute the future that is already here. I'm Arthur Falls. Today on the Ether Review, I'm joined by Stan Moroshnik of the Element Group, a full-service investment bank for the digital token capital markets. Stan, could you follow up with a bit of a deeper introduction about yourself and what is Element and how does it compare to traditional legacy investment services? Sure, absolutely. And thank you for having me on. My name is Stan Moroshnik. I run a digital capital markets focused investment bank based in Los Angeles called the Element Group. We're striving to build first full service token focused investment bank. So I come from very traditional investment banking. I spent a large chunk of my career at Morgan Stanley. And so when when we saw sort of early last year a number of these smaller offerings token sales that were being done very quickly for small amounts, it, it felt to me very much like the mental model I, I saw in emerging markets many years ago where nascent mark, capital markets were forming. And, and so very quickly, we, we saw the number of uh, sales built and the numbers scale very quickly. And so we started spending time trying to understand this market, understand it first and foremost from a legal and regulatory perspective, but also from a technical marketing perspective. And started building a, you know, essentially a very traditional investment banking practice of helping companies explore this new financing mechanism. I think this is just a new tool in the corporate finance tool belt that most companies have. And so we built Element to help companies think through that process, understand what's involved, you know, work through the crypto economics of what a token does and how it works in the ecosystem, and really just provide a little bit of structure and guidance to the process. How do you see this unfolding? You know, for me, it, you know, when I saw Mayweather get involved, it seemed like, hey, maybe we've hit some kind of local peak. Uh, so, so from our perspective, we're, we're seeing a very quick maturation of the market on both sides, from the issuers or sellers to the purchasers and investors, right? So on the issuer side, what we're seeing are companies that are much more mature coming to market. So where, you know, we started several years ago were basically open source projects looking for open source funding, you know, let's call it that. And then it was earlier stage companies that really have had no other options. And the companies I'm talking to today are, you know, series B, series C type venture companies who have other options, who already have VCs inside that add value in many other ways. Looking at this, not just for the money, but they see the token as a incredibly valuable mechanism to engage their community. If you're giving your users something that A, not only has a monetary incentive, but B, has sort of an attached virality because you now as a user are incented to go and tell your friends and send them tokens and get them involved in the business of the company because the more people use the tokens, the higher the velocity of the tokens, the higher the value because the supply is naturally constrained. That, that's an incredibly powerful tool for many types of companies, companies not only that are you know deep blockchain, but also companies that are building two-sided marketplaces where, where having your own currency is an advantage. Companies that are building networks. A great example of this is Kik and what they're doing with Kin, you know, a mid-stage venture, you know, growth company 
who had many other options, and they're choosing this mechanism because it doesn't just bring money. Money is a small piece of it. It brings a way to really incentivize the publishers and users on their platform to behave in a way that builds value not only for the company but also for this network. The same thing is happening on the buyer side. As we see more institutional-type purchasers come into the market, you know, we see many funds now forming to take advantage of this market from Polychain to, to Clock Tower to major family offices to us. We talk to lots of investors that want to be able to take advantage of this market. I want folks that have deep expertise and are involved with the markets day to day. And so that's why they see a specific advantage in having asset managers, hedge funds that are specifically focused on this market and looking at it, you can say technologically bottom up, trying to understand the contents of the white papers, trying to really do diligence, trying to dive into the crypto economics and understand supply and demand of tokens, how inflation will work, how mining will work, things like that. And now we're starting to see in these offerings grown-up mechanics, right? You're starting to see lockups for investors. You're starting to see uh, more interesting pricing structures. You, you're starting to see purchasers pay more, more attention to the way disclosure is constructed. So I think the market's growing up. I, I don't know if you know, Meriwether is positive or negative signal. From where we are, we see this market growing up very quickly. What about scaling concerns? Is that something that you're you're worried about or that factors into your assessment of the space? You know, it does, that debate doesn't so much touch, from my perspective, on the capital markets aspect. So we're somewhat agnostic. It's excellent that there's debate, right? So that there are very strong views of both sides and, and people who are vested not only in staying pure to the original technology and its purpose, those that are kind of reading the Satoshi White Paper prescriptively, and those that are pushing for innovation because they see these things, fundamental transaction protocols that have use cases that need to be upgraded with time. But it's also driving all kinds of innovation, right? So if you look at EOS and Tezos, for example, those are sort of next generation improvements to the constraints we're seeing. So it's good that the market is reflexive and it's, you know, it's reacting not only to the debate, but the innovations that are happening. I think folks on both sides of the Bitcoin debate realize that there are new tools coming to market that are going to essentially compete with the Bitcoin blockchain for various use cases. You know, I mean, Ethereum is a great example. The ERC-20 standard has basically won as a financing substrate for ICOs, right? Had Rootstock emerged earlier, maybe the exchanges would have chosen that as the default. Same thing for transaction throughput. We have Tezos and EOS promising vast parallel functionality where you can do tens of thousands of transactions. And maybe if Lightning appeared a little bit faster, that would not have been necessary. So all of this is a very healthy, I think, organic evolution in the market as we see new blockchains emerge that have you know, more narrow and more specific functionality. And I think all of that is you know, incredibly positive for the ecosystem. So the emergence of Element itself, what does that tell us about the ecosystem? Well, I, I think it tell, it, it, you know, my expectation is that there will be large institutional players that are going to come into this market. At some point, Fidelity is going to show up and they're going to say, I want to purchase 5 billion of X. Somebody help me do it and, and do it in a compliant, legal, transparent uh, fashion and just help me understand how to hold the keys, how to custody this stuff. And that's exactly what I saw in you know many years ago in emerging markets where you had these kind of dynamic niche markets where institutional players saw opportunity and starting started coming into en masse. You know, there's a number of in, uh, academic finance research papers that have shown that holding Bitcoin in your traditional portfolio and, and as a part of an alternative asset allocation 
contribute significantly to the diversification and therefore the risk adjusted return. So, you know, because Bitcoin is, is not correlated to almost any asset class with, with a very slight correlation to, to equities, but not to real estate, not to commodities, not to fixed income. And so if you're a traditional institutional investment manager and you're thinking about how do I compete and eke out another, you know, one basis points of alpha, Bitcoin is certainly an option. And, and as we engage with, you know, purchasers, especially institutional purchasers, we see now entrance of traditional hedge funds that are thinking hard about this space and about the role of at least core cryptocurrencies, let's say, you know, the top five in their overall portfolio allocation process. I think we are here to satisfy the significant institutional demand that's coming to this market. So, okay, so how did you get into all of this? Uh, you know, like all, like all good things, you know, somewhere between an accident and the providence of God, I don't know. You know, I started spending more time looking at, at blockchain in general. I, I bought a little bit of Bitcoin back in 2013 when it was very topical. I just wanted to kind of satisfy the inner nerd and figure out what a wallet was, what a private key was, and how to hold this. And so I have sort of was attuned to the space, but really kind of the light bulb went off when I started seeing these token sales come together. And the way the process, you know, ran and, and watching some of the processes like like Golem last year, these things were, were marinating in the market for a long time in the community. People had a chance to provide input. And then the actual placement of marketing mechanics seemed very familiar to traditional capital markets. And it seemed to be like what this needed was a group of folks who know how to run these processes well, more coordination, cleaner messaging, more structure around the disclosure. And, you know, a very careful eye to regulatory compliance and structure, as well as having sort of the right advisors on board to support the significant effort that is required. You know, any large financing, any experienced practitioner will tell you is basically a circus. And so you need someone that, that's able to kind of manage the chaos effectively and understand what the company is working on, what's happening in the technical work stream, what the legal work stream looks like, what the tax work stream looks like. What are the key priorities on the messaging side? Is there a ground game? Are you going to conferences? Are you effectively engaging with your audience? And then making sure that you know for the actual token sale process, all of the ducks are in a row. And and so that's that's sort of a very traditional financing work process management that an investment bank provides. And so this seemed very near and dear to what I've done most of my career. So what's your thesis for deriving value for seeking alpha? What's your strategy for that in the blockchain space? You know, I kind of think about two camps. I call them protocols and platforms. And that's what kind of we're seeing in the, in the crowd sales space now. You have protocols which are separate blockchains with very vertical functions. Things like Tezos, EOS, in some ways, Bancor, where you have these essentially massive uh, addressable markets. You know, these things were, were marketed very effectively by saying, oh, this is the next Ethereum or this is the next SMTP that you get paid for, right? And, and so when purchasers look at these opportunities, it seems unbound. And I think that's why protocols are able to raise so much more because the ultimate prize is actually quite large. And so if you think about, well, what is the total addressable market of a, of a chain like Bancorp? It's actually massive. It could be hundreds of billions, right? Same thing for Tezos. On the other side, you have what I would call platforms, which are more narrow token plays that are specific to a certain company's ecosystem, and where the total addressable market is maybe in the hundreds of millions or in the billions if their network thesis plays out. 
So this is, you know, we, we've worked very closely with storage, for example, you know, which is a peer-to-peer file storage provider who has, you know, a, a really compelling use case for the token that's very useful in their ecosystem, but perhaps it's not a protocol that's useful to others elsewhere. And so you kind of try to balance these two things and, and see where are you going to get out performance, which platforms are compelling, and then which protocols are going to win. And by making those focused, educated bets, I think that's how you will outperform over time. You know, others have a very different thesis. Others say, well, you know what? This is just like the early internet. If I just invested a little bit in every story, if I just indexed everything, I would have gotten a little bit of Yahoo. I would have gotten a little bit of eBay. I would have had, you know, just by virtue of being in everything, I would have massive winners that would have covered the losers. And so I think some of that is actually happening in this space where people are just essentially indexing the space by making very small anti-bets without you know, significant differentiation. And then there's a third group of investors that are taking a very traditional institutional approach that are saying, okay, I'm going to put 85% of my allocation to the space in you know, the top three or four currencies, and then I'm going to you know, take some risk off of that position or take 15% of that and make broad bets on what's called the altcoin space. And so, and so I think all of those strategies are valid, and uh, I think they all have a place in the market, and they will eventually all require you know, different and tuned-in asset management products. So there used to be a lot of talk about what is the killer app for blockchain? And, you know, people like payments. And it's like, well, no, definitely not. Um, settlement, maybe. That seems to be the way that Bitcoin has gone to now that we have well and truly debunked the idea that blockchain is going to be a suitable technical substrate for payments. And something that recently popped up in a discussion with a fellow Michael Minnelli of a company called YZen, who I met in, in London recently, he'd been building solutions that looked very similar to blockchains in the mid-90s for medical professions to collaborate and manage high-sensitivity medical documents. And something I do notice is that document management does seem to be a theme in a lot of these blockchain solutions. I know that you know, if you look at governance, essentially what you're, looking, what you're talking about is document management. So this capital markets thing that we're seeing emerging, this looks again like the next big killer app that has come out of the blockchain space. Well, you're exactly right in that different blockchains will have different killer apps. So we can argue that the killer app for the Bitcoin blockchain is store of value and digital gold or the alternative global reserve currency, because that's what it's becoming. Here in Korea, Japan, India, Venezuela, you name it, people are now seeing Bitcoin as a, you know, especially in volatile markets, as a reasonable dollar substitute because it, it's global it has a you know a single reference point, and that's Bitcoin's killer app. If you look at Ethereum, the ERC20 standard and the ability to raise funding, that's Ethereum's killer app, this new uh, funding renaissance we're seeing. For Monero and Zcash, privacy is a killer app. For record maintenance, for immutability and proof of documents, there are a number of other blockchain alternatives that are being built. Bitfury just released a separate blockchain for e-government services that are based essentially on this fundamental immutable quality and the ability to have things like land titles on blockchain, which not only helps streamline the efficiency of this of that process, but also helps fight things like corruption. And so uh, many blockchains will have different and unique killer apps. 
that's a cool sketch of the space. It's it's we're actually beginning to see what is what's happening now, which is you know, <laughs> which is really exciting. Although I often hesitate from expressing my own opinion too much. Hey, what do you think about SEC, recent SEC ruling about uh, tokens and their relationship to securities? So I think the the ruling was was welcomed by the industry. I think it was anticipated in many ways and. I think it was done in a very graceful way in that it was an action and and not an action at the same time. Nobody was indicted, nobody was punished, but it was a a very extensive and clear analysis of that situation. There are kind of three things to me that were innovative and real takeaways. First is that, you know, using the, the Howey test and its prongs is the right way to think about whether something is a security or not. And that's something that's practitioners and most major law firms involved in the space have been doing for a long time. But it just, again, uh, reaffirms the approach and says that it, it, it's a fact-based decision. The second piece was that, you know, exchanges should be very careful about what they're listing. And and so I, and I think that language was, you know, was stronger and more specific than we've seen before and a clear indication that, you know, the SEC is, is now going to be much more involved in those situations. And the third piece, and I think this was truly the new part for, for the market is, you know, I think it was literally two sentences in, in, in the whole suite of documents released, but it was basically along the lines of investors, you're potentially liable too. And so it wasn't clear what exactly that meant. And I think, you know, as, as, as we at Element talked to institutional investors, people took notice. I think there were a lot of calls made to attorneys that night to understand what did they mean and what is our potential exposure if we're buying, for instance, tokens in the pre-sale or if we're buying larger positions, what is the read-through to us as purchasers rather than those that are doing the sale themselves? Those were incredibly important points on what was said. Equally important was the piece that was not mentioned at all, which are utility tokens. And so almost everything that's done in the market today is done as a utility token that's you know theoretically immediately available and consumptive uh, does not touch any of the prongs of the Howey test and is therefore not a security. I think the SEC stayed silent on, on that specifically, and hopefully there's more guidance forthcoming. But look, I, I think from a practitioner's perspective, A, this is massively helpful. Two, we, we know that the SEC is incredibly engaged. They're at all the conferences in San Francisco. They're at the meetups. We know attorneys in the space have an active and productive dialogue behind the scenes. So I think this is welcome. I mean, this market is maturing and and more guidance is better than more enforcement in my, uh, in my view. So that's I think it's a real positive for the space. Fantastic. Hey, so where can people find out more about the Element Group? Take a look at our website at elementgroup.com and feel free to reach out to us at markets at elementgroup.com. Hey, thanks a bunch, Stan. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I'm sure we'll wind up talking again before too long. Arthur, it's a pleasure. Thank you for um, for inviting us and um, the wonderful chat. I appreciate it. Thanks. You've been listening to the Ether Review. I'm Arthur Falls. For more episodes, subscribe on iTunes or visit etherreview.info.